Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food and this week more than ever. I'm with Imad Alnab, whose story has become a symbol of hope for so many migrants fleeing their war-torn homelands. This is one of the reasons why I jumped in that dinky boat, even that we agreed about being 12 on it with the smuggler. I jumped in it because I don't want to get in that lorry back to, to Izmir. Imad's Syrian kitchen is so much more than a book of recipes from Syria. It's the story of gritty determination to make a better life for Imad's family, of meeting angels even when he was in the depth of despair, and the extraordinary healing that food from home can provide. I asked him what it felt like to leave Damascus back in 2015 to build a new life in the UK. It's not the Damascus I left behind. It was totally different Damascus. When I left Damascus, it was not the city that I dreamed of and it's not the city that I lived in you know it's it was some I left something totally different for example Damascus Castle it used to look this authentic historical uh, castle like what you see in in movies or on on photos but when I left that city it wasn't even the color was totally different was painted with red black, green, like the Assad flag. Uh, we, we have two flags now. One present Assad and his regime. The other one present the opposition. I want to be part of one community, not two communities like what we have now. Actually, we have many, many more. It's, it's not one Syria anymore. So when I left Damascus, it wasn't the same Damascus. But that's Damascus that you grew up in and that you were very successful. You had three restaurants, you had juice bars all across the city. I mean, they were all decimated within six days during the war. But I mean, Uh I've spoken to so many families um, for my series, Jai Salam, which I made back in 2015. And they talked about Syria being the most perfect country. It had the most perfect weather. It was gorgeous in the summer and Amazing. Gloriously snowy and cold in the winter. You've got the sea, you've got the mountains, you have the perfect climate, you have the perfect food, and we're going to go into that. Yeah, yes, we but do. But it, yeah. it was a country that was really beautiful and people lived a very good life, didn't they? Can you paint us a picture of that Damascus that you grew up in? Damascus was perfect for me and lucky people like me, but not for everyone. Yeah. We had people suffering from, like, for example, just, just outside Damascus, like, I think around eight kilometers outside Damascus. I saw people gathering, literally gathering over uh, a watermelon. The sad part is that this watermelon, it's not a good one, but because they were so poor, when they found it, you know, in, in Syria, uh, we used to have this small ruined watermelons thrown to cows. Because to they feed were so cows plentiful. From it. Yes. So it was great for, for grown-up businesses like mine or for the majority of people. It wasn't that way. The revolution was coming, but we, we were so blind to see it coming, actually, because because everyone thought that Assad regime is really on control, but we didn't see the, the Arab Spring 
um, we couldn't even imagine that it's something like this could happen in Syria. You know, like now, if you if you're gonna tell someone that th- in in few weeks you're gonna have a revolution, let's say in in northern Korea, no one will believe this because people there are brainwashed. But when when it starts, it's like a domino. You know, like you cannot even stop it. It's it's gonna. It's going to happen. And this is what happened in Syria. It was extraordinary how quickly it happened, wasn't it? And you got caught up very early on uh, when your family were nearly killed in in a bomb explosion and you were taken by the police and beaten really, really badly. Really badly, yes. Tell us about that moment when your own country turns on you. To be honest, it's not only my country turns against me. My whole life turns against me, you know, like no business. Everything that I worked for was destroyed. Lucky me that I had my family with me, but their life on risk all the time. And finally being accused that do something horrible like this just because they are looking for someone, anyone to accuse you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like police, for, for me, the police accused it, you of of putting that bomb uh, yes, in place. Not because of me. Not they. They wanted to accuse anyone. anyone. You know, they yeah. wanted someone, yeah. and I was that one because I was on the wrong place at the wrong time for me. And it was because your family um, was in it and you were running to help them. But you still have those scars and you still have that pain in your body from that that awful beating that you had from the police. It it was also one of the reasons why you realised just how dangerous this situation was and how you had to leave your country and your family to find a better life. To be honest, I I think we all, somehow, all the Syrians for decades... We knew that this is very, very dangerous. And it was somehow um, like a dream to go away from Syria because it's not safe. It's really not safe to stay there. But also, you know, when when we were kids, my I do remember my father used to say something, for example, uh, be careful, the, the walls got ears. That's mean... Don't say anything against Assad or his regime because we used to call them Mukhabarat, which is the secret police. It has nothing to do with any conflicts in, in the area. Mm-hmm. These secret police, it's only there to scare the people, yeah. you know, to yeah. terrify the, the, the people and uh, the Syrians. Yeah. Absolutely. You did take that very difficult decision, though, to to move and you had to do it very quickly. It was the most difficult decision ever in my life. You've got three girls and your wife. The difficulty about that decision was leaving my family behind, not leaving the city. That city doesn't mean anything to me. I don't really know why I stayed there for three years between 2012 since I lost my residence until 2015. But because that decision was so hard to leave your family behind, I couldn't take it. It took me three years to take that decision. I mean, the the migration story, you know, we've watched it so many times. We've watched it on, on the news, horrifying stories. And you were one of these people who took the small boats that were so terrifyingly dangerous. I mean, you crossed in a rubber dinghy that was made for nine people and there were 56 people in your boat, including 54, a pregnant yes. woman and 12 children. I yeah. mean, what was that like? I mean, we hear everything... We 
hear stories on the on the news every morning about the small boats and safe and legal routes. What was that like being in that small boat trying to get to a new life for your whole family? Let me tell you something which is I, I think it's it's going to be a little bit shocking for for the small dinky boat is not the scariest part of the journey. It it's, could be some of the easiest part of the journey. We were in a back of lorry from um, Esmir in Turkey to something they calling the point, which is where these small boats will be there waiting for us to be on it. We were 95 on that back lorry. We couldn't even move. Uh, someone, sorry, but just opposite of me threw up on us. We couldn't move just to wipe our face. It was so scary that someone uh, fainted and he couldn't even fall on the on the floor uh, and and the driver was so crazy I felt that we're not going to make it we're going we're going will flip or or being in an accident anytime now because it's yeah. feel very very scary in that time and to be honest this is one of the reasons why I jumped in that dinky boat even that we agreed about being 12 on it with the smuggler i jumped in it because i don't want to get in that lorry back to to izmir yeah i i i felt that no matter what happened now it's it's going to be much better than going back i wanted uh, at least it either make it to greece or let the turkish police take me because whatever happened it's going to be much easier than going back in that lorry again yeah. these choices that you are having to make in such a short period of time are utterly terrifying we know this story i mean that i watched the the film the swimmers recently yeah. and they did a very similar uh, journey to you and the one that we saw so often every night on, on on the news you walked hundreds of miles from greece to macedonia you took the train into serbia you cycled through serbia you were smuggled with five other men in the back of a perjo into hungary that one actually that one was one of the most scary parts ever the driver was drunk and honestly it was it was honestly very very scary moments in 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 that bejo i bet but you got to germany and you could have stayed in germany but you knew that you had to get to england this is where your family was in doncaster mm. and this is, and you could already speak english and you wanted to get on and you wanted to start working and let's talk about calais you did get to calais you went to the jungle and immediately knew that this is not where you could be now i i went to the jungle at this time as well and actually it was pretty amazing place i mean they the the refugees were creating high streets so it was yeah. amazing food being made in the, in the jungle i spent a couple of days there is extraordinary. Yeah. Um you decided that wasn't for you and ended up spending 64 days on a yeah. on the steps of a church cooking for 400 refugees. Tell me about that. Uh, uh, when I went to the jungle I already had this image in 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 my mind that this is would be very scary for me and then I met one of the most amazing human being ever <laughs> Frederick. I met her just near of the church and she somehow guide me what to do you know and this is would be easier for you and her choices was there is another way to do it yeah amazing and i stayed there for 64 days i mean that you do talk about a lot of these angel moments these people who come from out of nowhere and they help you and they give you that split second moment where you 
can suddenly go through passport control and you can suddenly get that opportunity to make that the rest of that journey. I mean, there are some very, very good people around, aren't there? I mean, I met them in the jungle, for example. There were a lot of volunteers there cooking up food for these people who had been through hell and back. But you meet so many of them and, and actually you give a whole section of the book to these angels in your life. Just tell us about some of them who made your life feel so much better when you were at your lowest ebb. Actually, I think I think every one of us meet these angels every day. I don't know, but every time you go out, definitely there is some of these angels walking around you. It's your choice to look at them and see them. You know, like, it's not like I'm searching for them, but it's it's make my life much happier when I see those people. And these act of kindness and act of love, um, uh, it, it's really nice to feel that you are surrounded by these people, you know, like, for example, yesterday I've seen, like, I was walking out of Carnaby Street with my family and someone stopped me and say, oh, we saw you on, on TV yesterday morning and we loved it and we just came here just to see you and say hello to you. It, honestly, this is something make your life stunning and amazing. And if, if you focus on something negative all the time, um, you're going to live one time. So it's your choice what to choose. I ch- I chose love and happiness, kindness. So it's up to you what you choose. And it, it, yeah, this is this is what I focus about. And yeah, I'm surrounded with it. Luckily, and, and you have a flock of angels. Yeah. You yeah, have yeah. angels all around you, don't you? All Including all getting all to Carnaby Street. I mean, I'm not surprised that that person comes to to actually witness the real Imad yeah. in Carnaby yeah. Street, <laughs> and because they you have been on television plenty of times now, but. But, you know, it was Asma Khan who, when you had finally arrived in England, you'd made your way to Doncaster, you were living with your family. The reality for all migrants who are waiting for asylum is no recourse to public funds unless you have a family to live with. You have nothing to live on. Many people are living in hotels with very little um, even access to enough money to be able to, to make culturally appropriate food for their own children. So they feel very, very disconnected and very mm. impoverished in spiritually as well as economically. You were very lucky. Your family actually looked after you until you could get to London. But then you were hoisted through the Cook for Syria movement to this pop-up movement. And from there, you were spotted, your food was spotted, you were spotted, and you were given an enormous amount of support by all sorts of people like Melissa Hemsley, Clark and Wellboy, Asma Khan, who told you that she had a space for you in Carnaby Street in Kingley Court, which is where your restaurant is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of angels, isn't it? Actually, it started slightly bit before that, when... when other angels like Leila Khan, when we had our first pop-up restaurant in Columbia Road. The name of Imad Syrian Kitchen started in, in Columbia Road. But I think it's all started in Cali, you know. When uh, these newspapers in Cali start to write about a refugee chef who's cooking for other refugees and other for other people on a steps of church in, in Cali. But the name of it and to put it all together, it's all start in Columbia Road. It was 9th of March 2017 when I saw that name on 
on Columbia Road. By the way, it's still there. I don't know why, but it's still there. No one bent on, on top of it. It's yeah. It was the real beginning of Imad Syrian Kitchen. The name being chosen there from um, the logo, all of it from, and I had a lot of support from. And to be honest, like, and I do believe in in a human being, and maybe everything happened for a reason. When when I was in Calais, I was so sad that everyone comes and stay there for one or two nights and and then they will make it to the UK. I was there for 64 days. Mm. I was a little bit disappointed that why me? Why I have to stay here on the steps of church all of this long and I cannot make it? But maybe this is why. You know, I met all of these amazing people in Calais and then we became friends in Calais. And then when I came into the UK, they give me a support and we were, we, we did it together. Absolutely. It is a story of um, humanity. Uh, yes. And in, in, very often in the depths of despair, when right in the middle of hell, there is that extraordinary ability to see what can happen to human beings. Kindness floats to the surface, doesn't it? And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, I'm very aware, as I'm sure you are, that there's going to be a mass migration with climate change very shortly. And we will see uh, that combination of hell and heaven again I'm, I'm sure of it let's let's talk about some of your food from Imad's Syrian kitchen and from the book of of the Syrian kitchen your first food moment is hummus I mean it's a classic Syrian Middle Eastern dish uh, there's lots of hummus wars about who owns it yes. but yours is a very traditional Arab recipe I made this the other day and it was absolutely delicious really creamy very tahini tell us about it really I don't want to start um, a hummus war but <laughs> it's obviously Syrian um, <laughs> it's it's not the whole region is Syrian you know like so for me even if someone says that it's Lebanese or Palestinian I don't mind because I don't believe in borders you know what I mean so so we it was just few uh, less than a hundred years ago it used to be all one country it used to be all one Syria or or in that time they used to call it Bilad Sham that's mean the region of Sham which is um well, yeah, it's it used to be all one country, so I don't really believe in. Um, the nice thing about it that it's it's very basic. So it's five ingredients. That's it. You can choose the topping what you wanted from. It's up to you. Uh, feel change. Feel free to change whatever you like in hummus. And you've topped it with minced lamb in your food moment. Why? Why have you chosen that? Do you still do that here? We still do that here, and we do it in Damascus. So. For example, in in there is there is few especially especially near of the old markets in in Damascus, you have few restaurants where the main main focus for them is like three or four ingredients. Like chickpeas is a big part of it. For example, you will have uh, uh, the type of restaurants called Hamsani. Hamsani is someone who deal with chickpeas and veva beans. And that's it. Everything else is related to it. So they will do hummus with uh, olive oil. They will do hummus with with lamb, minced lamb. But the main 
thing is hummus. Everything else is just a topping of it. So the hummus means chickpeas, by the way. So uh, if you wanna if you wanna create your own recipe of topping, it's up to you. But the basic is basic hummus, and that's it. Yeah, and and hummus for me. I mean, I've, I never went to Syria, and I don't suppose I ever will now. I mean, that's just so sad. Um, I heard so much about it, and it sounds such an amazing place. But you know, certainly in other places in in the Middle East, you know, it is that lovely sort of night market idea. Everybody walking around with, you know, falafel and mm-hmm. hummus, and you know, just it's street food, isn't it? And that lovely buzz that comes from people being out in the street and eating together. That seems such a loss. Can I ask you what is now? If if you open your fridge, what are you gonna find in it? Something you always have in your fridge? Actually, I always have hummus. Okay, so yeah, yeah, you know, you know, like we always have hummus in in our fridge. You know, like for some people, it's maybe a bottle of cold water. For us, you will always open our fridges and you will find hummus. This is something from Hawadir. Hawadir is. We call it ready-made, which is uh, like you always have a piece of bread in your fridge. You will always have uh, a jar of olives or pickles or a mm-hmm. bottle of olive oil. Yeah, it's something ready in there. I mean, I love what I love about that is that there's a hospitality intrinsically in that because if somebody pops over, you have something to be able to give them. It's not. You know, we might have something or I might have something in my fridge to snack on. But the purpose of you having hawadir means ready things. It's ready for other people, isn't it? It, it? It's about inbuilt hospitality. I love that. It's it's central to Middle Eastern culture. Yes, I, I do remember, for example, my my mother used to have like a whole feast when when my relative came from other countries in the middle of the night, like a dining table of eight will be ready within 20 minutes. And it's, yeah, you cannot even spot the table. It's sharing plates uh, everywhere. And it's all ready. It's all, it's all there. So, yeah. Exactly. And I think your second food moment is, is falafel. Mm. It's the same thing, isn't it? To be honest, in falafel in Damascus, we don't really do it in our houses. Because in every corner, in, in every street, you will have a falafel shop, so you don't have to. And it tastes amazing. So you can just walk for two minutes and you will buy the most amazing falafel. Actually, the, we have also in, in falafel shops, we have this small trick where when it's not that busy in the hot oil, you will throw coriander seeds. And the whole street will smell like coriander seeds in, in, in seconds. So you cannot really resist. And the nice thing about it in, in Syria, you don't have to buy a falafel box or a falafel wrap like in here. You can just ask the falafel shop is to give you, give me 50 falafel pieces and that's it. Nothing with it. You will, you will, of course, why are you waiting? Because it, they will fry it according to your order. He will grab one piece of falafel, dip it in summa, give it to you. And believe me, this is something to die for. <laughs> your, your third food moment, uh, saroja, 
uh, baby aubergine and cheese. Now, this is your creation. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? When I, I talk to a lot of people who are refugees from all over the world and the authenticity, the mm. unchanging nature of their mother's or their grandmother's recipe, that something that is absolutely, you know, belongs to their country, mustn't be tampered with. But actually, there are two food moments of your four that are your creation. Mm. Tell us about that ability to play. To be honest, it's, uh, I think I would like never dare, if I'm still in Damascus now, I would never dare to do anything like this. But I think this is the spirit of London. You know, like I can't be myself in here. I'm not afraid anymore to create my own dishes. I, I felt here, because to be Londoner, that doesn't mean any specific background or I dare to dream and I dare to create, you know what I mean? Like people, they don't judge me anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a very open culture. Exactly. I mean, it's a melting pot, isn't it? Well, London's food culture is reflected by the wonderful sense of openness and hospitality that comes from the city. I mean, I, I, I have a, a term for British food culture, which is an unstable food culture in that it doesn't have that rootedness where we know that something is British food. It's open. We're constantly fluid because of our colonial past, but also our acceptance of migrant cultures, which enrich our food culture. Actually, when people asking me about our Imad Syrian kitchen, I would always say it's a few parts of it. It's very, very traditional, but there is also something look like me, who's Syrian, but Londoner at the same time. Yeah. Very yeah. proud to be Syrian. But also very proud to be Londoner. I want this to be reflected in my food. The other day, I had someone in my restaurant saying that, oh, I tried Saruja before, but it doesn't look like this. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, no you didn't. <laughs> there's no such thing. Yeah, there's not. I, such I mean, actually, Saruja <laughs> is the name of one of the neighborhoods in Damascus, isn't it? Yeah, so it yes. is literally something that yeah. you made it's up. Not, it's not my neighborhood. It's somewhere just... 15 minutes away from my neighborhood. But yeah. in, in the recipe, there is two type of molasses, one date molasses and one cherry molasses. This area used to be very known of uh, doing molasses. And uh, uh, because they have this uh, Damascus traditional houses, we used to, to, to do our molasses on these old roofs. So this neighborhood... Uh, very famous to do uh, molasses and this is what like in, in, when I when I uh, created that recipe it's it's fine in, inspired by that scene and it reminds you of a happier Damascus I'm just looking it up um, it's a beautiful looking dish baby ogines with panko breadcrumbs egg za'atar ground cumin cracked black pepper parsley uh, and olive oil with with feta and halloumi and sesame seeds um, and as you say date molasses and cherry molasses with with mint it's a pretty pretty dish as well mm. let's go on to your fourth and final uh, food moment uh, another one that you have made up um, it's ibiza kanafa kanafa we we know but why ibiza 
because I had to do a pop-up in Ipiza. And it, it's, it was always challenging to create dishes for every pop-up. Not, not because I wanted to, because it's challenging to cook in someone else's kitchen. You know, like in London, for example, when I wanted to, to do a pop-up restaurant, I always do the basics in, in my kitchen, in my house, and then take it over. Which is making sense because it it will make my life much easier cooking in someone else's kitchen. But cooking a board in Ipiza was really challenging to create ice cream or baklava or, you know, I don't have the right facilities to do all of that there. So I had to come up with an idea how to uh, have a Syrian dessert. And believe me, it, it was really challenging. And then we created something It's looked like uh, cupcakes, but made from kunafa. Kunafa being a pastry. It's a it's a cardamom pastry, isn't it? As a, as a sort of yeah. classic thing. But you've done it with double cream. It's a cardamom and, pastry. And nuts. Yes. Um, you, you've dedicated this to Choose Love, yes. the, the, the charity that really helped you, of, of, of many, many angels who have helped you along your extraordinary journey. Um, Choose Love, you'd like to name check. Tell us about them. Um, first of all, uh, Josie from Choose Love, uh, who, who is the founder of Choose Love, she is my friend from even before. Uh, of course, with Hassan Akkad, one my best friend, and he is also. Um, so we, we both met, Hassan and I, we met in Calais, and then he met Josie, and then he introduced Josie to me, and Choose Love supported me to bring my family over. When, when I had my the approval of my family reunion it was really difficult for me because i want you know uh, uh, like any other refugee you need to pay for your tickets uh, renting a house doing all of this it's 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 a massive especially at the very beginning so they supported me bringing my wife and daughters from lebanon airport to heathrow And they paid for those tickets, which was, you cannot imagine, it's for some people, it's a plane tickets. For me, it was a huge relief because otherwise it's risky. If I could, if I couldn't do it on the time, it's risk yeah. to do the whole file all over again, just because I don't have enough money for tickets. So for me, it was a big deal. Then... At the same time, they launched their first pop-up and I catered for that first pop-up a few months after. I had, I always had this relationship with Choose Love because you can tell exactly where your donations are going to. And it's always for a great reason. It's all transparent and it's all, and this is what I love about Choose Love. Yeah. And you have raised an enormous amount of money through your pop-ups, haven't you? Through Cook for Syria. It's over 500,000. Yes, I would say, yes. I mean, that's extraordinary. And, and where does that money go to? Oh, you can name it. Um, Choose Love, uh, Next Generation, UNICEF, um, uh, Marlowe, um, Wickham Refugee Partnership. Not only refugees, we raised money for... Um, homeless, uh, young growth, for example. Yeah, m many, many different things. A few things like we did something for Hope Hospital in northern Syria, in war zone. Imad, your story is quite extraordinary. Um, you know, so many people have been really moved by it and you've become a sort of a figurehead. The, the story of the refugee who can give so much 
back to this country. When we listen to all these stories of the small boats and the, the politics of migration, you are a shining beacon for us all to understand. We invest in refugees to make the world a better place, to make our country a better place. And what's your opinion, having been on those small boats? What's What would you say to the politicians? What do you say to the politicians? Yeah, first of all, by the way, it's not only me. But lucky me, I was one of those people who stories being known. But that doesn't mean that it's a unique success story. Not at all. I know a lot of people who did great jobs in in their fields. Um, doctors, nurses, um, um, yeah, students. Um, yeah, the swimmers. Yeah. A wonderful story. Everybody should watch that film. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. <laughs> yes, actually, yeah, a lot of people like the swimmers, like me, like Hassan, Wad al-Khatib, all of these people, lucky us being spotted somehow. But there is a lot of other stories yeah. which people didn't even hear about. Yeah, I totally agree. It's not acceptable to, for people to risk their lives and, and pay these smugglers. But the solution is not by flipping their dinky uh, boat over and sink them in, in, in the Mediterranean Sea between between Turkey and Greece. Which does happen and it didn't happen to your boat but you saw plenty of boats being rammed by the Greek police. Actually actually, we were threatened by, by the Greek coast guards. We were many boats so they chose some other boats to flip over and to make their life a nightmare. And because they were busy with that boats, we made our journey. Otherwise, it will be us. This is not the solution. Sending refugees to a third party like Rwanda is not a solution. Being a massive amount of money to what you're calling hotels, it's not something for human beings. How you can call it a, a hotel? Why during the pandemic... You let these doctors and nurses from asylum seekers to stay in these hotels and not being volunteers in, 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 in hospitals. Why? You've been very outspoken about the Syrian government, about the Assad regime. They won't let you back in any time soon while they're still in power. You wouldn't want to go back either. How do you feel about your Syria now? Let me tell you something. In 2015... It was 50 days after I arrived to the UK, I lost my mother. That doesn't mean I don't love her anymore. But now somehow I do accept that she's not with us anymore. I'm very sure she is in a better place. I'm very sure she would be very proud of me and I'm very sure she is. She's proud of my daughters, but that doesn't make her a less part of my life. It's exactly the same with my Damascus, you know? I lost Damascus, this city and this country. The way it is right now, it's not mine. It's someone else right now. Hopefully one day we will take it back because it's ours. I don't know when, I don't know how, but hopefully with Syrian people, with our friends from all over the world, we will take our country back. Thanks for listening. Do pop over to Substack for extra bites where you'll be able to hear a couple of episodes from my very first podcast, Jayibli Salam, a story of Syrian migrants who'd made it to Brighton. And it's the story of their food and music from Syria. I'll see you next week.